This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell now? What the <laughs> hell is going on? I need to be more chipper here. <laughs> well, what the hell is going on is we've got uh, two new entrants into the Republican primary officially. We've got Senator Tim Scott, who announced his candidacy last week, and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, also throwing his hat in the ring. There's a, there's a pretty decent-sized field shaping up in the Republican Party, not thankfully, as big as it was in 2016, where you had like 19 people on the stage and having to have two tiers of debates and all the, the, the mess that that was. It's a pretty strong field. I think people have been sort of self-disciplined. Mike Pompeo decided not to run. Youngkin's decided not to run, though there's some rumblings he may change his mind. Yeah, I, I think, think he's so. sort of preparing himself for if everybody else stumbles and there's an opening for somebody to, to swoop in in November, then then he might jump in. But it's it's been sort of a semi-disciplined, you know, it shows that people aren't afraid of Trump in terms of getting in. So that that's a sign. But it's also not so big that it's unmanageable. What do you think, Danny? Could a challenger emerge to challenge Donald J. Trump? So, I mean, I'm trying not to let, you know, my hope triumph over my experience. No, look, I think, you know, Trump is a, uh, setting aside everything that we've iterated and reiterated a a million times on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, he is a formidable candidate because he's, he really, and I said this before, I said this before January 6th happened with perhaps a little bit more admiration than I do now, which is that he just has a feral marketing sense. He really does. I think he's lost some of that. I don't think that he's quite you know the the pitch man that he that he was because he's become so self-obsessed because I think that he is isolated from a lot of normal people uh, and and again not necessarily normal voters but in terms of the people he has around him for his campaign in terms of the people he has around him for his advisors you know he has peeled back the onion so many times alienated so many people that he's really down to the last few who he has around him and that's never a good thing for for any person so, but you well, know you that said, being you, said you he's said pretty we, formidable when we had him on the podcast, uh, you said he was quite charming. Is like you, th- I think you he, said that if he showed that side of himself to voters yeah. uh, more often, he probably would he have won the election. But he, but he can't. Remember, yeah. I mean, that's his yeah. problem, isn't it? That he was well brought up enough that when he's one on one with somebody, he behaves decently. But damn, you know, for, from boinking models uh, while his wife was pregnant too. No, you know what? Yeah. I'm sorry. All of those things are factors. He's kind of a pig. Yeah. You know, and that's the problem. I'm not, and, go, I'm and not going there. I mean, look, they, they, I mean, you're, you're I mean, more, we, you're more delicate than well, I am. I just think that that's not an issue for Republican voters. That's not going to, that no one cares about that. Nobody, you know, care, nobody Bill, cares Bill about Stormy Daniels. Taught us, no, you're right. All, Bill all right, Clinton taught us that. Bill Clinton taught us that, as Nancy Pelosi, the personal stuff doesn't matter. And Republicans took that to heart and and decided to look past him. I miss I miss those days when Gary Hart got out of the race. Gary Hart, a single man, got out of the race because he was uh, running around with some floozy. I also miss the Democratic Party of the the era of big government is over and uh, and work requirements for welfare and all the other things that Bill Clinton. I mean, uh, Bill Clinton. Yes, we never thought we would miss Bill Clinton. So anyway, do I? But you asked me a question. I do think. that Donald Trump is one horrible gaffe, one more meeting with Kanye West, one more, you know, Philo Nazi coming and visiting with him away from a potential disaster. Or uh, that could happen. And again, not a the disaster. voice of hope speaking over the voice of experience. <laughs> but, you know, he is also looking at some actual serious legal trouble as well. Not the BS, you know, E. Jean, whatever her name is, rape charges from 30 years ago or the Stormy Daniels garbage, but some of the classified information, the election interference in Georgia, all of those things are pennies that yet to drop. That just causes Republicans to rally around him. Well, I mean, he was in the 40s in the polls 
until the uh, the until the Alvin Bragg indictment, and that's when he sort of went into the fifties and has stayed there. So I thought um, it was pretty interesting that DeSantis floated that uh, he might be willing to pardon Trump if he became president. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I just for the record, I said that I think I think I said it on this podcast like uh, like six months ago that that would be a smart move for him to do. Let me give you a theory of the case of how Trump might not get the nomination. So I think that his support is a mile wide and an inch deep. And if there, there was a CBS News poll, and this is this is what I see the breakdown of the Republican. You wrote electorate. a piece about this. I did. Right? I did yeah. mention this in, in my column. That they say twenty four percent of Republicans are what I would call hard MAGA. Only Trump. They're only going to vote for Trump in the primary, and that's the only person they're considering. Twenty seven percent are not MAGA, not Trump. They won't vote for Trump under any circumstance. And these are Republicans. These are right? Repu- this is the Republican electorate, and then forty nine percent say they're choosing between Trump and other candidates. So what that says to me is so I call those soft MAGA, right? So you've got you've got these three groups of Republicans. The majority are in the soft MAGA category. They're not never Trumpers, but they're not Trumpers, 100%. And they're trying to decide. What that says to me is that 76% of the Republican electorate is up for grabs, or at least a significant portion of that is. And if somebody can emerge to consolidate the 27% who don't want Trump with enough of those people and, and persuade enough of those people who are soft MAGA in the middle uh, to come around, then he can be beaten. If that 76% is divided up among four, five, six candidates, then it's going to be 2016 all over again. Yeah, but I do think that there's another factor here. That poll, was that voters? Was that registered voters, likely voters, or just randos? I mean, that's the problem yeah. because, again, yeah. you know, you've got your most – and this is a problem for the Democrats as well, obviously. You've got your most motivated people who turn out for, for primaries. Sure. The, the system elevates the fringe. Uh, it always has. So all of this, of course, is bearing the lead that I actually wanted to talk about, which was not DeSantis's less-than-stellar appearance uh, to announce his campaign. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that Tim Scott raised, not, again, because Tim Scott raised it as an issue, but because – He tells us something interesting about the Republican Party, which is that the Republican Party is actually increasingly the more diverse party. The Republican Party is actually, fascinatingly, a party that has evened up numbers, has grown its base with black voters and with Latinos. There are a couple numbers that just really gobsmacked me that our guest uh, talked about. You know, what's happening in the party? No news to anybody that the Republicans are becoming more working class. We've seen that. And more multiracial. Dems are becoming more elite and more white. The Democrats are tied with Republicans among Hispanics right now. I mean, for me, that is something staggering. In the 2018 midterms, Dems held, wait for this number, a 47% lead among Hispanics, and now they're tied up. The only area where Democrats really are not just uh, holding their lead, but really increasing it is with women with college degrees, white women with college degrees. Uh, They are losing ground with everybody else. Now, as a white woman with a college degree who doesn't vote Democratic, I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that is extraordinarily interesting. And if we weren't spending all of our time talking about the fact that, you know, there was a Twitter meltdown for DeSantis or that Donald Trump is a, just, you know, the thing that sucks all the oxygen out of every conversation ever, this would be something that is hugely important. Well, it is hugely important because it's happening and it's going to affect the elections. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right to raise it. Uh, you know, and the other thing is that Joe Biden's approval with pretty much every group is down dramatically. I mean, he has. So just to put this in perspective, the 538 uh, website, if you go to it, has a really great appro- approval tracker. And you can track track his approval like every day of his presidency and compare it to every other president that is in the history of polling going back to Harry oh, Truman. Cool. And so I think, you know, on day 900 or so of of his presidency, which is where we, we, we reached that milestone this weekend. He's the least popular president in the history of presidential polling going back to Harry Truman, except for Jimmy Carter. He go he goes back and forth with Trump uh, a little bit, uh, depending on the day. But among all the others from the mo- at this point in his presidency and his approval with black Americans is at 60 percent. It was like in the 80s and 90s when he first took office. So he's so he's vulnerable with black Americans, particularly with black working class men, which is a segment. And the, and the thing is, Republicans aren't going to get a majority of the black vote for yeah. a long, long time. But Democrats need 
you know, 85, 90 percent of the black vote in order to win elections. And if Republicans can even make a small inroad in that community, uh, then then that's big. And in terms of the Hispanics, this is where the demography is destiny thing has fallen apart. It's that, you know, because you can't wait because you can't just say someone is black and therefore they're a leftist liberal and someone is Hispanic and therefore they're a leftist liberal. Well, I, well, I they all assume Mark. that they're for illegal immigration. Well, right? it's not just because that. because because they're Hispanics coming over the border. Of course, things. now it's not just Hispanics; it's Russians and 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 Ukrainian. Chinese mm-hmm. and everybody uh, coming over the border. Everybody's figured out that if you can't get in the country, just fly to Mexico City and cross over the border. You know, on but a you bus. digress. But I digress. Well, I don't digress because Hispanics who are who can vote are citizens, and if they are citizens, it means they came here legally and they followed the rules, and they don't like people cutting the line. Most immigrants are really anti-illegal immigration because they they follow because the they, rules. Because they follow the and rules. They, and these people I are sure cutting did. the line and sneaking into the country. Exactly. And so that's so the, all of a sudden, you know, Republicans being tough on the border, they thought, oh, this is going to alienate Hispanics. No, it really doesn't. And especially the Hispanics in the border towns. No, I know. Who don't, who don't Joe, like. Joe Biden is the one who said this perfectly. Joe Biden said. He said something perfectly? Yes, he did. <laughs> he said, he, he encapsulated the attitude of the Democratic Party. Oh, when okay. he said during the election, uh, during the last election, he said to somebody, if you ain't voting for me, you ain't black. And yeah. It was like, what? Because the Republicans want to put y'all in chains. Thank. I mean, imagine to yourself if a Republican had said such a thing. Yeah. It would be. It would dominate the headlines for months. But and in any case, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of actually interesting things going on that don't involve uh, random lawsuits against uh, Donald Trump or Donald Trump calling people by stupid new, new nasty names. Uh, and DeSantis is part of that, and Tim Scott is part of that. And we are really lucky to have someone who spends a little bit more time thinking about some of these nuances and a little less time thinking about how he can write yet another headline about Donald Trump uh, with us. I'm sure you folks will remember Josh Krausauer, who's with us today. He is now a really cool new job, actually. This is something I've subscribed to since its very inception. He's the editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. He's also a contributor to Axios, where he was uh, previously, and he's also on Fox News Radio. He's just a wonderful political analyst. And Fox News uh, special report. I've been on the panel with him a lot with Brett Bayer. Is that the star panel, Mark? It's called the all-star panel, Danny, which is why you're not on it. Yes, that, but and Josh I, that and is. I have a contract with but, NBC but News. Josh but Josh, yes. that's why, because Josh is on the all-star panel, and here's our interview. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Mark. Hey, Donnie. Great to be back on the show with you guys. So great to have you. We're very lucky to have you because it was a big week last week in the Republican primary race. We had uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis get in the race. And before that, Republican Senator Tim Scott announced his candidacy. Give us your assessment of what the week meant and how this will affect the upcoming primaries. Well, one of those two Republicans who announced their candidacy had a rally, had thousands of, of adoring supporters. And really got a, a strong stump speech to be heard across the country and, and got, got their campaign off on a, a strong note. The other <laughs> candidate is the Republican who is, is much more formidable as the runner, you know, the person who's pulling in second place in the race. And he decided to use sort of a very uh, uh, <laughs> decrepit technology uh, in Twitter spaces that couldn't handle you know, even a few hundred thousand people online and, and ultimately got off to a, a very shaky start, at least on the political front. Uh, now, did raise a lot of money, brought in, uh, I think, about eight million dollars on the campaign side in the last couple of days. But look, I, I, you know, it, 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 there is sort of a disconnect here between the Republicans that are running the campaigns the right way, <laughs> doing the basic blocking and tackling and still that they're, they're the underdogs. Tim Scott is the underdog. Uh, you know, he's pulling in the single digits. Uh, even in his, you know, he's struggling, and even behind in his home state of South Carolina as well. And then you have someone like DeSantis, who has a lot of things going for him. And Mark, you've written some great columns about you know, his conservative governing record in Florida. He's governed with a great economy. He's fought the culture wars successfully uh, in, in a way that other governors, Republicans included, haven't been able to, to say for themselves. And yet he seems to kind of focus on the most trivial or least significant parts of his record. And, and then you have this launch with Elon Musk uh, on, you know, the middle of this week, this past week. And uh, it just isn't the type of campaign you would expect from a first tier candidate like Governor DeSantis. So, look, there's plenty of time. We're in May. 
of 2023. There's, you know, many, many months to go before the campaign really does heat up. But there's a lot of warning signs uh, for the leading Trump challenger in DeSantis. And there's a lot of things to be, you know, frankly, encouraged, encouraged about with some of these new candidates like a Senator Scott. Uh, we're going to probably hear about Vice President Pence, former Vice President Pence, jumping in the race later later in the summer. Uh, so this is a very volatile field, but I think the, the, the elephant in the room still is former President Trump, who has only seen his advantage over all these other Republicans grow. And, and he looks like the, the pretty uh, solid frontrunner at this point in, in the race. Elephant in the room is is a nice way to describe describe Donald Trump. So Mark and I got into a little bit of a you know handbag fight, slapping back and forth at each other about whether DeSantis's rollout was was important or it wasn't. And I want to I want to get back to that fight uh, and continue to have it. But I want to ask you first about Tim Scott, and I'll tell you why I want to start with him, because. One of these things is not like the other. When I look at the list of people who are running or the list of maybes, and no, it's not that Tim Scott is black. It is that Tim Scott is sort of the the sunny, happy warrior out there. He's not taking on Trump. He's not hating on Bud Light. He's not engaging in those typical sorts of arguments. He's kind of like, you know, this is my story. I'm a striver. I believe in America. He's at least trying to strike a a Reagan-esque note. Um, do you think there's even room for that in American politics anymore? <laughs> well, I think there are two parts to the question, which is, number one, what does the Republican Party even look like in 2023, 2024, right? I, I think there's almost a realization that a lot of folks in, in, on the campaign side are realizing, right, that you may have to basically be Trump or some, you know, if you're not going to beat Trump, you're basically going to have to be some, someone very similar to Trump with his populism, with his in-your-face anger and grievance uh, peddling. There may be no room for the, you know, the Marco Rubio, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley types, Mike Pence. For, I mean, you look at Mike Pence's negatives, by the way, in Republican Party polling. Uh, you know, I would have been stunned if you told me what they were you know, a few years ago. And are they? look, the numbers, the, 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 the reason Pence's numbers went, went, went down in, in the Republican Party wasn't because of, of, of his governing record. It was because he didn't defend Donald Trump on January 6th and he didn't break the law on January 6th. So that's the Republican Party electorate when it comes to the base, when it comes to the primary voters these days. And it may just be that no matter how strong of a campaign you have, no matter how effective of a message you have to the broader electorate, it may just be, and we've seen this in some of these Senate and congressional primaries recently, it may just be you have to be the most crazy. You have to pander to the worst elements <laughs> in the party to be successful. And that may be just a, a bridge too far for many of, of these candidates. You know, as far as Scott goes, and I look, I, I do think that Scott, from a basic, you know, politics 101, how to run a good campaign, he's done everything right so far. Forget about the ideology, but forget it for just the strategy, the tactics. This you know, the thing that DeSantis, I, I kind of am stunned that DeSantis, who has been so successful as, as a governor, gets stuck in the weeds when he's talking about, like, abbreviations like, you know, ESG or, you know, even, even DEI, which I understand and a lot of us understand. But even a lot of Republicans don't speak in sort of the technical details of, of the conservative online world when they're criticizing some of the excesses with, with, woke, with woke progressivism. You know, Trump, for all his you know challenges, he actually speaks very bluntly about the, you know, a boy's a boy, a girl's a girl. Like, this is crazy stuff with what's, what's going out in the school. Like, that is the rhetoric that, that the simple, straightforward rhetoric that is successful and effective in Republican politics. Tim Scott has the classic Reagan-esque rhetoric, but it's not just the policy. It's the connecting of the biography with, with a conservative message and the big themes that you would do if you were elected president. You know, I, it wasn't just the, the, the glitches from the, the Twitter event uh, this past week. It was the fact that DeSantis seems to be talking to an audience of like maybe a few hundred people that are very online that don't necessarily speak the, the language of what is it like cultural Marxism and, and some of these phrases that, again, I understand what he's talking about. And a lot of people very immersed in this stuff do, but it's not going to reach your average Iowa caucus voter. It's not going to reach your average t- you know, town hall questioner in New Hampshire. And I'm kind of stunned that with all the preparation that DeSantis had, uh, he is not hitting his mark when it just comes to talking about his successes as, as governor of Florida. Yeah, I mean, put aside the technical glitches, which I don't think he can be blamed for. They can be blamed for deciding to do this on Twitter spaces to begin with. I mean, the idea that, first of all, you know, I was on special report the next night on the on the all-star panel. And, you know, if he had had a campaign event like Tim Scott's, Brett would have taken that live. 
at 6 p.m. Yeah. and millions yeah. of people would have yeah. seen it. You know, he's not going to take a Twitter Spaces audio only event that does <laughs> that gets delayed for 20 minutes, you know? And then he's he's sitting there with Elon Musk, who's like a famous guy talking a about rich guy. talking and talk but I mean who is taking up as much airtime and talking about Twitter and talking about Bitcoin and all this stuff and it's just like you know, there's no video, there's no adoring crowd, there's no, you know, softening his image by showing him with his family and his lovely wife and his yes. kids. It's just mindless. Now, I know he did break the internet. I mean, they had so many people tune in that they couldn't handle it, and that's probably a good thing. And, you know, I think it's had 3.3 million views uh, since then. But, you know, it actually hasn't had any views because there's nothing to view. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, an yeah, audio yeah. thing. I mean, well, well, it's like it wasn't even Mark, Zoom. You would have been better with Zoom. <laughs> At least there's a picture. Well, the reason that you have <laughs> you, the, the reason you, you have an announcement like that is that this is a one moment throughout the, in, at almost at any other point in the campaign. You get one chance to introduce yourself. That. Right, one chance to introduce yourself internationally. Like you know, the, a lot of the international networks are going to be covering your kickoff event, and you're never going to have a chance to get that type of audience ever again. And we were waiting, you know, we were kind of, when's the date? When is he going to make the big announcement? The, the, the crazy thing is that this week, DeSantis is doing a campaign kickoff in Des Moines, and he's going throughout the state of Iowa. That could have been the, the introduction. That could have been the kickoff, and they could have done the, the, the Twitter event, you know, the week after. And, and, and no one would have, you know, Elon Musk would still be around, I'm sure, to, to do that event. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little confused at some of the tactics and the decision-making within the, within the cam- campaign apparatus. It's really interesting, actually, because I was talking, I can't remember to whom, but another Republican senator, actually, last last year, and he said to me, you know, Tim Scott, um, I have really high confidence that he would make a very good president. I don't have really high confidence that, that he would run a good campaign. And I think so far, as you said, that's been wrong. But I, I want to come back to something that, that both you and Mark mentioned. I get the outrage factor uh, against wokeism and DEI and ESG and all of those acronyms that we talk about in Washington. I, I get that. But that is that is not what has propelled DeSantis to success in Florida. It's not getting down and, you know, and talking in the weeds. It's about big ideas about how to change things and being effective. I can't understand what the disconnect is. By the way, that wasn't his only chance to introduce himself. That was his second chance to introduce himself. He could have introduced himself after he had a landslide election. Well, he did. And and let Donald the, Trump eat his lunch. He yeah, was the first Josh, person you don't even need to be here. Mark and I are just going to fight right. with each other. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but what are political insiders saying about all of this? Is everybody as perplexed as we are? Well, look, I, I, I do think the cultural stuff, especially what he did... But in the run up to the reelection, I thought that, you know, that was actually good stuff. I mean, that was stuff that was sellable because he wasn't talking about, you know, punishing vaccine makers. He wasn't talking about the six week abortion bans. He wasn't talking about, you know, I've always said that DeSantis has trouble taking the W, taking the win. Like he had some really kind of what I would call mainstream political account. The silent majority of Floridians and, and probably Americans, I'm sure, agreed with him on some of these fights he picked with the left. But then he, he he needed more. Like he didn't he couldn't he couldn't accept the win. He had to continue fighting with Disney over the the zoning of, of a you know a property in in Orlando, right? He, he had to fight with the College Board, and I think he talked about banning the SATs, which I think got to a point where he won the fight over curriculum in this African American Studies program, and then he still needed to fight with the College Board, and he eventually lost. I think they ended up going back to some of their old plans. And it looks a lot of this culture war stuff. It's kind of the seasoning to politics. You need some of it to, to spice things up. It actually it doesn't just connect with the base, but it gets a lot of some of these swing voters engaged. But it can't be the whole message, and it can't be the dominant message. You've got to talk about the economy, how your economy uh, is stronger than Cal- how people in California and people in blue states are moving to Florida because everyone wants to get jobs and, and have great, great travel and, and have great, great amenities in a state like Florida. You, the numbers are undeniable. Inflation is lower in Florida. I mean, that is what people care the most about. And to leave that out, to not think big picture and to focus on the kind of on the weeds, it's like putting too, like too much salt in a, in a, in a recipe. You're, you're, you need that. It's a prerequisite to, to being part of your message, but it can't be the only part of your message. And, and you I also, think you that's also one just... thing that the DeSantis campaign has lost. 
you just made a better sale for DeSantis than I think he made for himself when you talked about the Florida economy and you talked about all of that. That's that's exactly right. Well, what's what's so unbelievable about it is that that's all he's been talking about. I mean, he did a book tour on the Florida model, right? The Florida blueprint. And he went to the Reagan Library in California and his whole speech was about how for, uh, you know, 180 years, everybody was beating a path to California. And now they're beating a path out of California to Florida and had all the stats and the data and everything like that. And he's been talking about that. And it's almost like he got bored with it. And so he, he didn't mention it in his announcement. Or didn't talk about it in any way. It's like if you look at the Fox News poll that just came out yesterday, I mean, the number one issue is inflation in the economy. And, yeah. you know, he's got a great story to tell there. And and he didn't focus on that. I just it's 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 perplexing. Yeah. And there was a lot of I think there was more talk, uh, Mark, about crypto on, on the Twitter spaces and the, the actual like inflation situation. So that, that was a problem. It's a problem when, when you're when you kind of get in those rabbit holes. Yeah, Elon Musk blew up a SpaceX rocket, and he blew up Ron DeSantis' launch, too. (laughs) (laughs) Mark's been waiting to say that. I can feel it. So let's talk about the other candidates for a second, because obviously, you know, we're talking about Trump. He's number one. Ron DeSantis, he's a solid, solid number two. But there are other candidates. I actually felt really badly for Tim Scott when I looked at the list, because Vivek Ramaswamy is running at twice uh, what uh, Tim Scott is running at, which is 4%. Is this really early to be talking about the presidential? This is Mark and I were talking about before we called you. You know, do we just have no sense of what the landscape is really going to look like because it's June or almost June of It wasn't Jeb exclamation point leading at this point in 2016. (laughs) I mean, it's early, guys, but it always, these campaigns move fast. And, uh, you know, we're going to really, frankly, going to be calling the field come December, January, like, Remember in 2020 for the Democrats, Kamala Harris didn't even make it to to the Iowa caucuses. So I, you know, I, I think there's going to be a need to kind of streamline the field if, if candidates like Nikki Haley or Pence or whoever aren't getting the traction. Um, they're almost going to be doing Trump Trump service for him because they're going to be splitting up some of this uh, anti-Trump vote out there. So look, I think it's actually useful to have more candidates because I think we're still trying to figure out what Republican voters are, are looking for. And look, I, I could see Scott breaking through. Uh, it's early. It is early. He could air ads in Iowa, by the way, like the only states that matter right now, it's not the national numbers. It's Iowa. It's New Hampshire. It's it's all these candidates trying to make an upset play to dethrone Trump in, in the first two uh, caucuses and primaries. And if that happens, you know, throw out these national polls because they can change really fast. The problem, I think, is, is that the Iowa numbers are, are also looking very, very strong for uh, Trump. There was a Emerson poll, I think it was a little favorable to Trump. They, they tend to be pretty, pretty hot for Trump these days. But it, it showed Trump with about, I think, about a 60-point advantage over DeSantis, maybe, maybe a 40 to 50-point advantage uh, head-to-head against DeSantis. Um, you know, even the, the, the more optimistic uh, anti-Trump folks that are doing polling in the state find Trump, you know, 15 points up uh, over DeSantis. So, look, even the early states where, where this race is going to be decided – Trump has a pretty formidable lead. So, look, it's early. I, th- I think there's there's a play if, if you're DeSantis, if you're Scott, if you're Nikki Haley, which is to camp out in Iowa, try to get to Trump's right on, on some of the social, uh, cultural issues, but, but especially abortion, where DeSantis signed that six-week abortion ban, which may hurt him in a general if he gets to the nomination. But it, I think it's actually a smart move in, in, the, in the primary to win Iowa, to win some of these uh, conservative states. But if he doesn't win Iowa, if Trump wins Iowa, and, and, and if then he follows that up with a New Hampshire victory, the, the race is over. Like, everything is going to come down to those, those first two early states. Yeah. Tell me what you think of this analysis, that it seems to me there are really two Republican primaries. There's a Republican primary to challenge Joe Biden, and there's a Republican primary to challenge Trump. And then we got to settle the, that one first. And so, you know, yeah, Trump's at his, you know, 50, 55 range. You know, he was in his, in the 40s until the until the indictment. Then the rest of it, is, there's a, a primary to emerge as the challenger. But isn't there a danger that we could have like, you know, these candidates following the Ted Cruz model, which is, well, I'll just be the last guy standing and I'll challenge him at the end, which we know doesn't work because at that point he's built up so much momentum. Don't don't we have to like see, you know, if these guys can't get out of the, you know, one, two, three, five, six percent range, got to get out and <laughs> by yeah, Iowa yeah. if we have multiple candidates on the ballot in Iowa it's over it's Trump yeah yeah no it, and I, I actually am worried that or if you're a Republican I think you should be worried that some of these candidates may not get that message they, you know they're already getting in later and they, they're gonna want more time to show that they can turn things 
Like, still, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and that South Carolina dynamic is going to be uh, very interesting because it's possible one of them moves ahead of another, and you probably would think that the South Carolinian with more momentum should be the one who stays in, <laughs> the one who's not raising enough money. Or, you know, maybe they should get out. But boy, I, I'm a little skeptical that that's going to happen because I know what happened in 2016, and I'm hearing a lot of the similar re- rationales from these campaigns on why they're not, they're not going to be the ones to to do the dropping out, and and, and they're going to want to like take their time to see who can be uh, the most formidable. So I, I am sort of skeptical that there's going to be sort of a teamwork <laughs> effect. The, the one asterisk, the one thing that's going to be interesting to watch, especially as we get closer to that Fox debate in August, is Chris Christie's entrance, his potential entrance into this race. He's the only Republican. And I've, I've been surprised how little Nikki Haley or DeSantis or even Tim Scott has even drawn any contrast against uh, the, the front runner who, who, who you're going to have to beat to be the nominee. And that's a very 2016 thing, a very 2016 dynamic where every Republican wanted someone else to take on Trump and no one did until the very end. And then it was too late. Um, I think Chris Christie actually may, I, I don't think he, I mean, maybe I think in his heart of hearts, he's, he's not going to be the nominee, but I do think he may enter the race as someone who's going to be on the debate stage and actually will prosecute the case uh, against Trump and maybe get some eyeballs and maybe get some some points that way, at least points against Trump that way. So that's one thing to watch. But boy, if no one's going after Trump by the time that debate rolls around or if Trump doesn't show up at that debate and it doesn't affect his numbers, I mean, he's going to be a heavy favorite if things don't turn pretty quickly. Ugh. All right. We've taken this in a direction that's depressing me, and I hate that. Let's take this in a direction that doesn't depress me, which is uh, not necessarily Donald Trump's loss, but at least something good about the Republican Party. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that you highlighted is, you know, Tim Scott, only black Republican senator running for president. We've got a black Republican running uh, for governor in Kentucky. In fact, the Republican Party is not the party that I think a lot of people think it is, or at least not it, not as much as party that the Democrats think it is, which it's is not, the white supremacist Jim Crow party. Exactly, but Mark Mark, of course, uh, said it better. He's much better with this cultural stuff than I am. But <laughs> <laughs> among other things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Uh, but I mean, one of the things that you note in this piece that you wrote, and I think I would agree, is that coastal elite takeover of the Democratic Party, and you obviously didn't use those words, but I will, Um, the coastal elite takeover of the Democratic Party has meant that on values issues, uh, on social issues, on religious issues, uh, actually they are out of step with a lot of people in the black community and, and in the Latino community as well. And I think that's something that's really worth doubling down on for a lot of Republicans. But I, I, I wonder if you can sort of dive into that a little bit, what you see. Well, so, absolutely. I think it's a very important uh, dynamic. And there was actually new data from the liberal sort of data mining, mining group Catalyst that came out uh, a couple weeks ago and found that when they actually examined the, the precinct by precinct data, that it was uh, African-American voters that even though they still voted solidly Democratic, it, they made among the most uh, moves towards the Republican Party, especially African-American men. Um, so it only confirms some of this anecdotal or, uh, you know, the, the, the growth of African-American Republican lawmakers we're seeing in Congress. And uh, look, I think it, the thing with, with, that makes it so politically important is if, if that trend even continues on a very small scale, that could change the dynamic in states like Michigan or, you know, in states like Georgia. You know, the, the map could look a little bit different if Republicans could get 20 percent of, of the African-American vote versus, you know, 15, 10 to 15 percent. And it's doable. I mean, I think you can look at some of the targeted races, and there's there's some evidence that Republicans have made uh, small but significant inroads. And in your in your scene, I think it's not a coincidence. You're seeing uh, you have Tim Scott leading the you know the charge on the presidential race. You also have Larry Elder, who's not going to be much of a factor, but he's also running in that in that field. You have Byron Donalds, the congressman from Florida, who I see on almost every cable news show these days, and makes the conservative case pretty effectively much of the time and he's becoming a more familiar face to you know kind of kind of the news junkie crowd and and you also have like you mentioned Kentucky I mean that's going to be the big race in 2023 uh, it's going to be a competitive race uh, Governor Bashir is quite popular for a Democrat in the state of Kentucky but all the polling suggests this is going to come down to you know two or three points and it's going to be a hotly fought race with 
the eyes of the country on it as a possible precursor for 2024. Um, and he's someone who is a Mitch McConnell protege who I've had, a, I've interviewed him a number of times. He, he would be a, a national star if he gets uh, elected governor uh, in the Republican party. So, you know, I mean, there are a lot of these, these data points that are growing and emerging and, a lot of people didn't. Um, there were a lot of predictions. If you remember back in the, the the Romney era, when Republicans had been losing ground with non-white voters, and it was it was sort of an inevitability that Democrats were going to going to win the day in the future. And what, it's hard to kind of predict things because the opposite of a lot of those expectations has actually happened. Where Democrats have done better with these affluent white suburbanites, they've actually made surprising inroads in the last decade, and Republicans are, are making inroads with. Uh, you know, Hispanic, African-American, and, and, and Asian-Americans uh, to a point that a lot of people didn't see coming. So, look, the, in a way, Democrats still hold the advantage because there, are, there may be a lot more. The, the suburban voters are in some pretty crucial states and districts, and that's a pretty valuable voting block by itself. But the racial polarization that seemed to dominate our country for, for so long is actually going the other direction. And I think it's a, good, it's a good sign. It's an encouraging sign for both the Republican Party and also for for a democracy. Yeah, you know, Democrats say Republicans are becoming the party of the white working class. They're actually becoming the party of the working class, yeah. uh, isn't it? I mean, you know, there, there were a lot of uh, working class blacks and Hispanics and other minorities who they had the same things that are attracting white working class people to the Republican Party are attracting them as well. That's right. I mean, the Democratic Party right now is sort of the party of like the really rich, <laughs> the really elite, and then the, the very poor. It's a sort of a incoherent uh, coalition that identity politics plays a big role you kind of fusing that together but that 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 is framed that is changing and uh, I, I see that trend continuing at, at, at a small scale level in the coming years and it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2024 and whether um, how Tim Scott does in the in the primary and you know whether any Republican can continue to make some of the gains uh, that have been happening since the last or I guess since 20, 2016. It strikes me you know when you talk about the changing nature of the Republican Party and the changing nature of the Democratic Party as well and and the very much growing, I think, class divides in the United States as, to, as far as how people see things. It strikes me that, you know, Joe Biden really is sort of the finger in the dike for the Democratic Party. He's the last. He is the last yeah. of those sort of, you know, Scranton PA. Is he even from Scranton? But still, I digress. But, you know, he's the last of, of those sort of union, you know, loving, train riding, you know, kind of ice cream store talking kind of guys who's not out there trying to push a Green New Deal. I mean, he is, but, you know, that's his image. There, there's nobody else. There's no one else. There's no one else there. Well, I that's mean, why he's the nominee. Well, he's the nominee because they well, literally couldn't come up because, with anybody else. Because they're not well, stupid uh, like Republicans, apparently. But <laughs> I, I was going to say that's exactly I mean, that, that. The reason why an 82-year-old Biden is, is being pushed to run for re-election is precisely because of that dynamic, which is, a primary, an open primary for the Democrats in 2024 would become a, a very messy civil war that would be defined along identity and ideological lines. That Elizabeth Warren or you know Pete Buttigieg would be unable to win over any non. I mean, the, you look at their performance among non-white voters in the 2020 primaries, and you know then you have you know someone like Kamala Harris who would probably underperform with a lot of other voting groups, um, given her approval ratings right now. And, and she's the vice president of the country. So, I mean, we are in like, I mean, the wow. Democrats, it's kind of like, go with the devil. You, I mean, they, they, they know Biden's problems. They know his health is going to be a huge issue. His age is even an even bigger issue. And yet they look at the other options and they look at kind of the divides within their own party. And they're like, We'll, we'll take the known knowns and not the known unknowns, as Don Rumsfeld once said. <laughs> like, go with the known known in Biden instead of these these kind of scary unknowns that could happen if Biden stepped aside. I cannot believe that you just quoted Don Rumsfeld. Just as a little aside here, I actually snarkily <laughs> said to Mark before we got on, let's see how many Rumsfeld quotes you can get in because it drives me crazy. And there you are doing his job for him. I knew he brought the right guy on. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love, I, I, I am a fan of, of, of Rumsfeld's rhetoric, but that, that is, you know, that was the, a great, the that was a great line. No, yeah. I think, look, I mean, we need to wrap up. Uh, we've taken so much of your time, but this really is a, this, you know, look, I think, I think we have not spent a lot of time because we're so caught up in, in, in fights, both petty and, and extraordinarily important um, in the now that we don't recognize that this is a real inflection point coming for us and that we really don't have an idea 
what's ahead for either the Republican or the Democratic Party. It's like standing at the edge of a cliff and kind of looking over and being a little worried. Yeah, we, we are at a tipping point. This is this could be the last, you know, if you have an 82-year-old and a 78-year-old, if that's what we have. I mean, it's not a great sign about where, where we are as a country. Like, if that, if that's not what most voters want, yet the parties are kind of so so drawn to, to the, these uh, elder statesmen. But, you know, I think a lot of, uh, in 2028, I'm too far ahead of things. <laughs> yeah, they'll be full. <laughs> I mean, Biden will be 86. I mean, that's hard to imagine. I mean, 86 years old at the end of a, a, a second term. But, you know, I was talking to a Republican strategist who says, like, the, 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 if, 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 unless Ron DeSantis wins, Trump is, uh, you know, couldn't run for more than more than one other term. And, and you know, Biden is obviously would be termed out. And, and 86. And you could have like, you know, J.D. Hawley or, or sorry, J.D. Vance, Josh Hall. You could have this kind of very, uh, as, as you guys know, this like Nat Con wing. They want to make their 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 their, uh, their statement in, in Republican politics. And there could be a changing of the guard, whether it's along racial lines or it's along ideological lines. But there's, there's going to be a lot of changes in both parties uh, in the next election. And there's going to be fights within the parties that are going to get really, really messy and really could define where we where our politics go in the next couple of decades. I've got a, two quick exit questions. So one, you know, we were talking about why Joe Biden is the nominee. The reason he's the nominee is because the Democrats saw that they were headed for electoral disaster if Bernie Sanders was the nominee. And so everybody got out of the race. He's not that young either. <laughs> and by cleared. The way. And, but yeah, but he's a young he's, he's a young, young 82. He's a young 81 or 82 or whatever he is compared to Joe Biden. But, you know, do you think there's any hope that we're going to have similar discipline, you know, that Republicans will see Donald Trump as their as their Bernie Sanders and that they got to get out of the way in order to have one person challenge him? So I'm pessimistic. You know, I do think when you look at the parties, the whole historical line about kind of institutions was that they still mattered and parties still decided or at least shaped these uh, nomination contests. And, you know, that's not the case anymore, but it's certainly not the case with the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party is almost trying to imitate the Democratic Party of like the 70s and the 80s, where like there was no one in charge and you had a lot of chaos going on. And and, and that's kind of where, where, where things stand. And I don't think there's anyone that could tell um, even the more kind of traditional candidates uh, to step aside. I don't think there's any institution, whether it's the RNC or, or any, any any leadership structure, to tell anyone to step aside. Um, the Democrat, I will give them, I mean, the Democrats still, if you look at the, you know, the makeup of the Democratic Party, there still is that moderate kind of traditional block that listens to, they're much more deferential to leadership, for better or for worse, these days. And they still have their own problems along those lines. But I don't think what happened for the Democrats in 2020 when, you know, Biden, all he had to do was win South Carolina, and then, you know, then you had uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar step aside right away, and they all sang Kumbaya and got, got together pretty soon. You know, I just... I think it would be a hard time to see the Republicans, like whether Trump gets the nomination or whether whether DeSantis gets the nomination or anyone else for this party to be for Humpty Dumpty to get put back together again. It's a, it's a really challenging task, and it's really hard for anyone to control all those uh, volatile dynamics within the GOP right now. All right. So curveball for the final question. Joe Manchin, no labels. So, you know, <laughs> Manchin obviously is not going to be able to win his Senate race in, in West Virginia now that Jim Justice has gotten in. He's got no path to reelection there. So, you know, the normal move in politics is when you're blocked at one level, you know, apply for a bigger job. <laughs> the <laughs> and, American way. You know, it, what do you think of the possibility of if Trump gets the nomination of a no labels candidacy with Joe Manchin at the head of the ticket with a Republican vice presidential nominee? And, you know, the third party thing has always been it's like Ahab and the whale. It's like it never it never happens. But, you know, it seems like the majority of the country doesn't want a Trump Biden rematch and they're getting it. They seem to be getting it anyway. And neither side has any safe harbor to defect from their candidate. Right. If you're a Republican who doesn't like Trump and you look at the Democratic Party under Biden, it's like I can't vote for that. And if you're a Democrat who's not thrilled with Joe Biden, you know, you can't vote for Trump, obviously. Could this be a unique situation where sort of a a third party that's sort of centrist, moderate, bipartisan ticket could actually pull enough votes to be competitive? Well, I do think Manchin is seriously considering it because he doesn't have a great pathway to reelection in West Virginia. And he's he's already gotten a lot of attention as the the pivot vote in the Senate. He could certainly get more attention as a third party candidate. And he does like that. uh, the, 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 The media oxygen. You know, it, I think I, I don't think that even even someone who's the most compelling third party candidate, even with Biden and Trump, uh, the partisanship is still so strong in this country, even with the growth of independent or people defining themselves as independents. It's just really, really hard to, to kind of 
run, run up the middle and, and get 35% of the vote. Just look at Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, which, by the way, is one of the states that has the most independents, most swing voters in the country. And she may run, and we may get, get to see this kind of independent test in action in that state in the Senate race. But all the polls show her still in third place as the incumbent senator, you know, kind of at 15, 20%, making a you know, big, big statement. But, you know, you have to get 35, 40% to really, you know, Ross Perot was at that level back in 92. That was the, the high watermark in my, in my time. It's just really hard. And, and I do think that when you look at the polling out there, Trump has a, if it's Trump, he, he you know, still has control of about 80% of the Republican party and getting 20% of uh, Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans and getting, you know, maybe 15% of uh, anti-Biden Democrats. It's just, it's just gonna be really hard to put together a plurality and, and, and add to the fact that he, the Manchin or a lot of these other candidates would probably pull more from Biden than the Republican nominee. And that just is what's freaking out Democrats right now. They don't, they so don't they want help any money. Trump. They don't want any candidates talking with no labels because they think this is going to be a close election. And they think even a small number of votes to a third party candidate could change, change the, the race dramatically. Wow. Yep. We're, uh, what is it? Buckle your seatbelts. We're in for a bumpy night. We're in for a bumpy 15 months or so. And we're going to come back to you, Josh. I hope you don't mind. We love having you on. Yes, I, I love being on. And, and thanks. Thanks for having me uh, for this episode. So you asked about Joe Manchin. I thought that was really interesting. First of all, I think it's really interesting that somebody who can't get, you know, renominated for their old job thinks they should be president of the United States. Yeah, the people of West Virginia don't like me enough, but maybe I can fool all the Americans. So, But what do you think? Do you think he has a shot? So I think, look, I don't think a third party candidate has ever had a shot in a long time in American politics. So, But who knows if this isn't a unique year? I think you have a unique scenario in which Joe Biden is clearly the vast, vast majority. I mean, there's so many polls showing people think he's too old for the job. He is too that, old for the that, job. I mean, that that he's I incompetent. You people. If you just look at the polling, there's literally not a single issue on which he has approval of the majority of Americans on anything. Nothing. Zero. Right. And then you have and, and so people do not want him to, you know, I think a poll came out the other day, something like 70 percent of Americans would think it was a disaster if, if Joe Biden was elected to a second term. And a similar number would think it was a disaster <laughs> if Donald Trump was elected. So Americans are fairly united on the fact that we're heading towards a disaster. And yet they can't seem to stop themselves. Uh, well, yeah, because. The primaries are run by the base, not by the by the overall, you know, the swing voters don't necessarily get to get to vote in primaries. And so what that means is you've got an interesting dynamic going into this election, which is that the both parties, there's a lot of voters who don't want their candidate, but don't feel comfortable with the other candidate. And so if you're a Biden voter, uh, if you're a if you're a Democrat or a sort of a swing voter, an independent and you don't want to vote for Biden, you you don't have any safe harbor if Trump's the nominee to go to the Republican nominee. And if you don't want to vote for Donald Trump and you're a Republican or an independent or a swing voter and you just feel that's you're not comfortable going there, well, I guess maybe I'll vote for Biden. No, I can't because it's the worst president since Jimmy Carter. It's an absolute disaster. How can I vote for four more years of this? And so there's a lot of people who are just begging for somebody else for safe harbor. And so there might be a scenario in which a credible third-party candidate, bipartisan, he could pick can, somebody can like... Can get Joe Biden or Donald Trump elected. Could, could, they, could, or could pull enough votes from either side. Joe Manchin uh, is a centrist, a moderate. He's how old established. is he, by the way? I he's, thought he was kind of old, old, too. He's pretty old, too, yeah. He, he's but, a I mean, sprightly 70-something. If, if he picked a look. Republican as his, uh, as his running mate, so it was a bipartisan ticket, you know, somebody like Larry Hogan or something like that sort of centrist, moderate Republican... Uh, you know, as as his running mate, uh, I there's a lot of people who might go for that. Just guys, we're talking about fresh young Joe Manchin. He's 75, by the way. <laughs> that's that's young by this by this field. He would be the youngest person in the field. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, us. I don't I don't think it's likely, but I think first of all, I think it's likely that if if Trump is a nominee, he that will happen. Uh, because I think the no labels movement is is planning to field somebody, and so I think it's likely that it will happen. The biggest problem Joe Manchin has is that he really hurt himself by caving in on Build Back Better. Yeah, uh, I no mean that's kidding. the reason why he can't win his Senate that's, seat. That's why I wouldn't vote for him. Yeah, I mean because he, you know, because he could have been the guy who stood up to Joe Biden on spending right. and stopped the spending spree right. that people are uh, against, and stood up for fossil fuels and all the rest right. of it. And you know, in West Virginia, he pissed off all the Democrats 
who hate him for standing up to Biden and all the Republicans who liked him. He lost them, too. So he's got you know, he's he, he basically alienated both sides. Great. I don't know how that translates nationally and whether people are pissed at him that way as well. But I don't I don't think that it's as you know, normally it's like a, you know, a two percent chance. Uh, you know, I don't I think it's somewhere above two to five percent chance that that ticket could could do something. So last question from me to you. OK. Do you think Ron DeSantis can write his ship? You wrote a very, very nice warm article about him. I know I know you didn't think that the Twitter uh, rollout was as big a fiasco as I thought it was. I was actually listening to it. And when you listened to it, it was really bad. I couldn't get into it. Uh, at, oh, at yeah, the time, no, I, I tried in, to get on and I kept for, saying, you know, this this room is gone or whatever. I, but I will say he seems to have a knack to, to make these kinds of missteps. He's got a great narrative if he could just get his shit together. Do you think he can get his shit together? Uh, I think he can because he got his shit together in Florida and ran a, an impeccable campaign there. Mm-hmm. And won, you know, he won by 19 points. He won Hispanics. He won women. He won independence decisively. He flipped Democratic counties. Uh, that had that that had been you know Palm Beach County, which hadn't gone for a Republican in in decades. He won, so he's shown or, that. Or he is can he do another Scott Walker? Well, maybe we don't know. Maybe, or maybe or maybe Donald Trump is Scott Walker, or oh, or gosh. or Jeb Bush, or whoever it is. <laughs> but you know, this the, the here's the case for for DeSantis. I'll give you a sh- the short the short case for DeSantis. After the 2022 midterms, we were told that we had to choose between two types of candidates. We had to choose between the sort of reform-minded governors, forward-looking, positive reform-minded governors who are improving the lives of their citizens and won over swing voters, independents and swing voters. Sort who don't Youngkin. Vote Youngkin. For Youngkin uh, I mean, uh, Kemp, Christy Noem. Uh, Kemp in, in, in Georgia. Georgia, DeWine, Sununu. All of these guys won in 2022 midterms decisively in those elections. The people who lost were the populist rabble-rousers who really got the conservative base excited but but alienated swing voters. And so we have to choose between those two types of people. Well, maybe not because he's both. He is a populist. He's taking on Disney. He's talking about wokeism, all those things that we talked about with Josh. It stirs the hearts of the MAGA faithful. They love that stuff. But he also has a record as a, I mean, if you just look as a at competent what, governor. As what, not just a competent governor. I mean, his management of the of the hurricanes, all the bills he passed just since he came back into office after since his reelection. The most, uh, you know, forward leaning school choice law in the country. Second Amendment rights, uh, he, you know, criminal justice reform things he, the, for public Public safety. He has a raft of you know, things that he's done. He's kind of if, if Mitch Daniels and Donald Trump had a baby. <laughs> that, that, that's okay. uh, that's and Ron on, DeSantis. And on that horrifying note, <laughs> folks, <laughs> hope you had a great Memorial Day holiday. Thank you again to everybody who's served our country. Uh, they deserve more than just one day or two days. Uh, they deserve thanks every single day. And uh, thanks for being with us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 